you're listening to Central Time, I'm Rob Ferret. Coming up, a digital privacy expert talks about concerns over AI, so-called artificial intelligence, using personal and private information. Right now, it's time for Wisconsin Life. Here's producer Maureen McCollum with a story about some memorable bartenders. Wisconsin has one of the highest concentrations of bartenders in the country, with more than 24,000 people working behind a bar. And a good percentage of them are women. But as writer Patty C. tells us, that hasn't always been the case. Few of us bar lovers realize it took until 1970 for women to legally tend bar in major U.S. cities. The only exception was if they were the wives or daughters of male owners. Over four centuries ago, British pubs were often run by women. In the New World, Puritan-influenced blue laws were enacted to protect ladies from taverns full of drunken men fighting with swords and guns, not to mention their vulgar language, gambling, and overflowing spittoons. History professor Madeline Powers, author of Faces Along the Bar, claimed that drinking establishments offered alternative entrances for Victorian-era women so they didn't have to pass through the front barroom, which was still undisputed male territory. In later eras, saloons filled with women often meant money was made the old-fashioned way. I'm not talking about Wisconsin's favorite mixed drink. After World War II, registered nurse Joyce Connolly and her Navy pilot husband Hank planned to open a grocery store in western Wisconsin. Instead, in 1950, the couple bought a building and transformed it into Glenlock Bar on Chippewa Falls' north side. Joyce was seven months pregnant, and the couple had three- and five-year-old daughters. Hank did the heavy lifting in the bar, replacing kegs from the ice house down the road, while Joyce says, I was behind the bar all the time. She put their children to bed before the nightly rush. This beer bar catered to 18 to 20-year-olds. Sometimes parents came in to check out the spot kids flocked to for lining kugels, hot beefs, and french fries, the entire menu. Our customers were wonderful, Joyce says. She is 98 now and continues to live in Chippewa Falls. When I was a kid in the late 1970s, my family frequented our neighborhood tavern below Holy Ghost Hill in Chippewa Falls. Francis Tootie Wilson bought the Plunkett Inn and changed its name to Tootie's. She was a fixture there. Another bar owner once challenged Tootie to a wrestling match in a kiddie pool filled with pudding. I hope photos of that event still exist somewhere. Sunday afternoons, my dad often drove our family 60 minutes to Jump River Roses Deer Farm and Supper Club, where Rose Warizniak let customers pet her tamed fawn inside her tavern. One patron remembered Rosie as a lady who could smoke a cigar, tend a bar, milk cows, go out logging or hunting, and then listen to your troubles over a beer. She'd also spent time as a bull rider and stock car driver and later ran for Russ County Sheriff. Paramount Pictures paid Rosie in advance for a film based on her life. Because of people like Joyce, 
Tootie, Rosie, and many others, today women make up 61% of all bartenders in the U.S., though they still don't purchase bars as often as men. Back in the 1950s, Glenlock co-owner Joyce Connolly often fretted when patrons nicknamed her tavern Hanks. She recently joked, all the work I did, and they never called it Joyce's. Patty C. is a writer from Lake Halley, Wisconsin. Wisconsin Life is a co-production of Wisconsin Public Radio and PBS Wisconsin in partnership with Wisconsin Humanities. Additional support comes from Lola and Mary Peterson of Appleton. Find more Wisconsin Life at wisconsinlife.org and on Facebook and Instagram. The technical producer for this story was Sarah Hopeful. I'm Maureen McCollum. This is Central Time. Earlier this year, a group of authors, including John Grisham and Jody Pico, sued OpenAI over what they allege is plagiarism of their books after artificial intelligence companies use their books and others to train their algorithms. But artificial intelligence isn't just trained on published works of art like books and paintings. Companies also use massive chunks of the public-facing Internet, like social media profiles, company websites, voter registration databases, and much, much more. Meta said that its latest AI was in part trained on public Instagram and Facebook posts. Elon Musk says that X, formerly Twitter, plans to do the same with its users' content. Amazon says it will use voice data from customers' conversations with Alexa. That's just part of the public data used at the back end of these so-called artificial intelligence applications. The Biden administration just issued a new executive order on AI. It's not clear yet what it will really mean for the use of this info. So what does it all mean for your information, personal, public, private, how it gets collected, used, misused? You can join in at 800-642-1234. Do you have questions about how these AI apps are trained, how your data might end up being part of it and ultimately used later on? Join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234 or email ideas at WPR.org. Dorothea Salo is distinguished teaching faculty at the Information School and the School of Computer, Data, and Information Sciences at UW-Madison and an expert in personal privacy and security online. Dorothea, welcome back to Central Time. Thank you so much. I'm really glad to be here. Now, let's talk a little bit about how this artificial intelligence or what we're calling artificial intelligence now is and how it works and how it gets trained on this massive, massive data source that is the Internet. Well, AI is a lot of things, really, and we don't want to go there. What we're mostly talking about now is so-called generative AI, like chatbots and like um, image generators. And the way that they get data is very similar to how a search engine like Google or DuckDuckGo gets data. Basically, an AI model builder writes a little software program that can load web pages, follow links on them, and find stuff that the builder might want to train their their AI model on and send that back to the builder's servers. There have been some concerns and some articles written lately about uh, how much information is going on there, things that uh, individuals might not think goes into this. What, uh, for our personal data, what we might have thought Mm -hmm. of as private data even, what is ending up, uh, as far as we know, on the back end of these AI, uh, generative AI apps? As far as we know, there's a little bit of, um, more than a little bit actually, of race to the biggest AI model going on in this space. How you show that your model is important is the size of its training set. 
So the incentives there are really to let the, the crawlers grab whatever they can find, absolutely no vetting, um, and just throw that willy-nilly into the training set. So what kinds of personal data might, uh, might this apply to? Anything that you post publicly, as you mentioned, to a uh, social media platform could end up in a training set, though there are some platforms like Reddit, for example, that are actually pushing back really hard on this because they're getting scraped and they don't see any value for, for it. So they, they want some kickbacks from the AI companies on that. But beyond what you post publicly, security on the, on the web, um, information security kind of is what it is and it's frequently kind of bad. And since the crawlers and the people who run the crawlers aren't paying attention to the data that they're vacuuming up, it is quite possible, and there are documented cases of data that should not really have been public at all, accidentally ending up in training sets. Right, an Ars Technica report from about a year ago talked to an artist who was looking for her art showing up in these things and ended up finding medical images that had been under the control of her doctor's office somehow finding their way into the public internet, getting scanned, and then reproducing pictures of her going through medical treatment. Right. Uh, is this going to be a bit, is that a one-off, do you think, or is this something that could be happening more commonly? Oh, no, definitely not a one-off. Um, and there's history here. This is not the first time this has happened. About a decade ago, for example, Duke University researchers released a data set for facial recognition researchers of what was basically surveillance video from around the Duke University campus. And they didn't tell anybody beforehand. They certainly didn't seek any consent. They were like, hey, everybody, check out who walks around our campus. Um, so the, the organization responsible for this is called Leon. And they're interestingly a nonprofit. They've got people from academia. They've got people from industry. So I think one lesson here is that we sometimes have the sense in our heads that nonprofit equals good, nonprofit equals ethical. And in the AI space, I don't think we can totally trust that. Now, so, oh, go ahead. I was gonna say, we've been focusing on the input now. These uh, AI, yep. generative AI bots are finding all this data, they've got it. What do you worry about when it comes to the output? What they're gonna do with this, in some cases, maybe highly sensitive personal information? Oh, there have been some interesting cases there. There's actually a lawsuit ongoing, I believe, against OpenAI, I believe it's OpenAI, uh, at present over um, a chatbot putting out material about a living human being that was arguably defamatory. It was certainly not true. <laughs> <laughs> and it did not make the person in question look real good. So he is suing the AI company saying, seriously, this is not okay. We're talking about why artificial intelligence is sometimes trained on private and sensitive information that was not always intended to be public in the first place. Dorothea Salo is a distinguished teaching faculty at the Information School and the School of Computer Data and Information Sciences at UW-Madison. You can join in at 800-642-1234. Do you have concerns about these generative AI programs, the information that's going in, the information they're putting out, misinformation maybe they are putting out? Do you use the chat GPTs or, uh, or image generating AI programs and more? 
What are you seeing? Join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. Or email ideas at WPR.org. Coming up, a look at an executive order on AI from the Biden administration. This is Central Time. You're listening to Central Time. I'm Rob Ferret. We continue our talk with Dorothea Salo, distinguished teaching faculty at the Information School and the School of Computer, Data, and Information Sciences at UW-Madison, looking at uh, artificial intelligence uh, applications, many of them trained on public information, sometimes private and sensitive information, not always intended to be public in the first place. You can join in at 800-642-1234. What are your hopes, your fears, your questions about artificial intelligence? Do you want to see regulations? What should they look like? Join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. Okay, now we have this new uh, executive order uh, from President Biden. He signed it. Here's a little bit of what he had to say about it. The company must tell the government about the large-scale AI systems they're developing and share rigorous independent test results to prove they pose no national security or safety risk to the American people. All right, uh, Dorothea, this is a big, long executive order, a lot of subpoints. Big picture, do you see much in it that does a lot to protect our our data, our privacy? Unfortunately, no. Um, there is language in it about privacy. It's very vague language. But what's interesting about it is actually uh, what the dog did in the nighttime, which is nothing. Uh, nothing about transparency in terms of sources. In other words, these AI companies do not have to tell us where they are getting their data from, which is exactly what people who have concerns about their private data or their creative output really want to know. Yeah, what what would you like to see in terms of regulations? And I'm guessing, I'm hearing some people say it would have to come from Congress more likely than an executive order. What kind of transparency requirements to start with would you like to see? Uh, transparency of sources is really the big one. You need to tell me where you're scraping. Um, I, another reason for transparency is that there are starting to be some technical measures available to at least tell these web crawlers from these AI companies, no, you cannot scrape my site. And another thing that I think transparency would accomplish is um, are these crawlers being polite? Do they hear the word no? And do they actually respect it? Now, how about intellectual property? I mentioned at the outset yeah. that uh, author lawsuit, now those are big famous authors. Lots of people come up mm -hmm. with uh, ideas and turns of phrase and images and songs and things like that. Do we yeah. have enough well-defined protections for our intellectual property as, as individuals, as creators? We really do not. We don't have uh, a whole lot of court rulings here uh, to give us guidance, and we don't have a lot of legislation. There is a bit in the executive order where I believe the Copyright Office and I think the Trademark Office as well are going to meet and they're going to discuss what they think guidelines should look like. And that's a positive, but I have no idea how that is going to turn out. Now, with social media, I think uh, over the course of a handful of years, we went through cool cat pictures to, hey, these <laughs> things are leading to like governments being overthrown and things like that. We should have probably gotten yeah. out ahead of this sooner. Are, do you get a sense that there's some sense of urgency on AI to not let that happen? Yeah, this is part and parcel of the whole misinformation problem. 
um, which partly stems from AI chatbots, for example, do not really understand the world around us. They do not really understand what they're saying. They're just making statistics-based guesses about what a good answer would look like. Um, I have a lot of librarian friends who have been having trouble at the reference desk because people keep coming to them with citations to books and articles that don't exist. <laughs> and invariably, what happened was somebody asked a chatbot um, about something academic and it produced all of these completely bogus citations. So that's one example of a much larger problem. And I don't even know how you regulate around that. It's Brianna Collar now at 800-642-1234. Chad is with us in Manitowoc. Chad, hi. Hello. Um, hi. This might, hi. This might be a little bit off the subject, but I was just um, judging from what you're saying, you're not too concerned about the singularity taking being something that we have to be concerned about soon. <laughs> Chad, thanks for the call. Uh, and this no. is just uh, so uh, just uh, the singularity, this idea that artificial intelligence is going to hit a, t a tipping point where it's smarter than humans and doesn't need humans, uh, things like that. Right. Now, there are some people in the industry who are making a big yep. deal about this. I understand you're a little skeptical about uh, that effort, Dorothea. Yes, I am extremely skeptical. And I think part of the reason that industry people are pushing uh, talk about the singularity is that it's a distraction from all of the other stuff that we've been talking about today. Uh, the use, the plagiarism of copyrighted material, the use of personal private information, as well as creative output without any kind of real value exchange. Um, but if you can get people worried about the singularity instead, maybe you can avoid regulation on all that other stuff. Chad, thanks a lot for the call. Important issue to bring up at 800-642-1234. Talking to Dorothea Salo from the Information School at UW-Madison about artificial intelligence, regulation, and or lack of same. Dorothea, absent, uh, say, Congress stepping in and doing something yeah. or the executive branch doing, what are you worried about as these companies run kind of full steam ahead on, in this, as you mentioned, a race uh, to create the biggest, most powerful generative AI? Um, I think mostly I'm worried about something that is not specific to AI. We've certainly seen it in other forms of technology, search engines, social media platforms, whatever. And it, it is really just people steaming full, full ahead without thinking through the implications, without taking responsibility for the harms that they are causing. Um, and as we head into a major election year, um, that's really starting to scare me with the hallucinations and misinformation issue particularly. And I've heard of legislative efforts, I believe including here in Wisconsin, to try to uh, create limits or bans on using, for example, uh, if I take the rival candidate, gin up some AI mm -hmm. thing, having them doing or saying something terrible, uh, trying to ban that. I mean, is that a crude implement or is that something we need more of? It's a start. Um, it, uh, it's really hard to write something comprehensive in this area because things are changing so fast. So you do end up with this kind of whack-a-mole legislative effort where you see the latest horrible thing that somebody is doing and you say that we need to stop them doing that. 
Um, but that, of course, leads to extremely specific laws and really just kind of a gappy sense of, um, of what regulation should look like. Now, earlier this year, we had this petition from a bunch of scientists, tech industry leaders, including mm -hmm. some with some of these AI companies saying, hey, let's take a six month pause on advancing AI technology till we evaluate the risks more. Uh, is that realistic? Would you would, is that a good idea? I don't know. I don't know that we would know any more about the risks in six months <laughs> than we do already. I suspect that is another delaying effort to try to, you know, look good to people. I don't think they expected it to succeed. And I don't, I'm not even sure they really wanted it to. As we wrap up, Dorothea, do we see, I mean, we've been talking about a lot of concerns about generative AI. Do you see, do you have hopes for some positive uses just in our last half a minute or so? I do, um, but it's not so much for these very general tools like the chatbots and the image generators. Um, research AI, there's some very interesting things happening, uh, very relatively narrow uses of AI with narrowly constructed data sets. There's a lot of really interesting stuff happening there, and I definitely want that to continue. Dorothea, thanks a lot for joining us again. You're very welcome. That's Dorothea Salo, Distinguished Teaching Faculty at the Information School and the School of Computer, Data, and Information Sciences at UW-Madison. She talked to us about artificial intelligence and privacy concerns. Coming up tomorrow here on Central Time, it's heating season in Wisconsin. How much is it going to cost us? We'll check out the latest news from utilities and the energy market and what it all means for our energy bills. And high school football is a longstanding tradition in communities around the state, but many districts are having trouble fielding full teams. Find out why and how schools and athletes are responding. That and more coming up tomorrow here on Central Time. Coming up after the news, a Wisconsin political scientist talks about his new book, The Fantasy Economy, which tells the story of why so many Americans blame economic problems on the educational system. I'm Rob Ferret. This is Central Time. Listening to Central Time, I'm Rob Ferret. Imagine a world where high-paying jobs that require a university education are abundant. All you got to do is go to college, get decent grades, and pass. For many years, this is what many policymakers have promised, and lots of books and reports from education reformers and thought leaders tell us that the jobs of the future are coming, promising exciting new possibilities for college graduates. But according to the author of a new book, this is a fantasy economy. The real economy, he says, is filled with lower-paying service jobs that don't require college degrees that often leave people in or near poverty. This is a political problem, he says, a problem for employers and corporations to solve as well. But instead, he says the American education system gets blamed again and again. How did we get here? He says it's the result of a long-running political messaging campaign. You could join in at 800-642-1234. Does that story sound familiar to you? Did you get a good college education only to find that opportunities for stable employment weren't what you had hoped for? If you didn't pursue higher education, what have your job prospects looked like? What do you think should be done to create a better economy for the workforce at all levels? Call in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234 or email ideas at wpr.org. 
Neil Krauss is a professor of political science at the University of Wisconsin, River Falls, where he teaches courses in American politics and public policy. His newest book is The Fantasy Economy, Neoliberalism, Inequality in the Education Reform Movement. Neil, welcome to Central Time. Thanks very much for having me. I want to start. I want to start by digging into this concept of the fantasy economy, and it seems like there's two major parts of it. First of all, uh, the jobs of the future, the the need for highly trained, highly skilled, highly educated uh, people. Uh, it's been a commonplace this idea that we have a skills gap and undertrained workforce. You look a lot at uh, employment and labor statistics. What do you find the reality looks more like? Well, the reality uh, looks more like uh, a labor market that today is still dominated by jobs that typically require a high school degree or less. This is according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics. So about 60% of jobs today still only require that level of education. Um, and that those numbers have changed a little bit over time. But, you know, as I talk about in the book, uh, this notion that the you know, that there was a skills gap, that the labor market was upskilling. Uh, this really first emerged in the 1980s, and we're still hearing this language. Uh, and it really hasn't happened 30, 35 years later. We're still waiting on that. Uh, and that's why I call the book uh, The Fantasy Economy, because the it, it's really a distortion of what we see and experience every single day. But that idea leads to another key part of the concept of the fantasy economy, as you describe it, the idea that we are going to boost our economy. We're going to lift more people out of poverty by educating them more and educating them in those skills that are hypothetically needed in the job market. Can you talk about what that and this is all the core of your book, I think. Can you talk about what that's looked like over the decades in practice? Well, in practice, I mean, the most of the story that I tell starts in the 1980s, although the origins go back, you know, several decades before that. But really, beginning in the 80s, we heard this message that the K-12 schools were failing. That uh, this is a time, of course, of, of massive deindustrialization. So industrial jobs are going away. There's an assault on organized labor, and you know what what business does and what policymakers uh, do, and it's kind of shift the debate. Rather than talking about what's happening in the economy, uh, very real patterns about jobs being sent overseas and about you know unions uh, uh, under fire and the minimum wage that is stagnant and so forth. Rather than talking about that, you know they very very clearly very explicitly shifted the discussion to the at that time to the K-12 education system, and so we had all these reports in the 80s that the Reagan administration funded and, and authored. Um, basically saying that the schools were, were to blame, that our, you know, economic dislocations, uh, that the loss of industry, that the, you know, the, the auto industry and others, that there weren't enough skilled workers, and that's why industry was, was going overseas. But, you know, the, the, the problem is, is that, you know, the, the, what they started to, to argue is that the new economy that was going to come in was going to have all of these sort of high education, high skill high wage jobs. And so it was up to the education system basically to prepare students for all these jobs that are that are that are imminent. I mean, the Reagan administration issued a very famous report in 1987 called Workforce 2000, right? So by by the year 2000 there were going to be all these these high skill, high education, high wage jobs out there. But that never really happened. I mean, that still hasn't happened. 
And and so, but but the paradigm of you know basically blaming the schools for for uh, economic inequality and stagnant wages, that's what stuck. Uh, because the message, you know, and I grew up in the 1980s, uh, the message that the schools were failing was absolutely everywhere, absolutely everywhere. It was on, you know, network news and cable news and news magazines, and local news and newspapers, it was just absolutely everywhere. It was taken as a given that the schools were the problem. And that's why industry left the country. That's why wages were flat and, and all the rest of it. Um, you know, and then several, a few decades later, right, the problem became us, the problem became higher education. So now most of the, the um, you know, reform efforts and criticism that we're hearing is directed at the higher education system. But really, and, and the, the bottom line of the book is that, you know, we can educate uh, as many people as we want. We could give everyone in Wisconsin a bachelor's degree, right? We could send every low-income student uh, to college. And but at the end of the day, that doesn't that can't change the labor market. It's not going to change the number of warehouses that are built or jobs in retail or home health care or food services. Or these are the jobs that dominate our economy. We're just going to have a, a lot of very well-educated workers in those fields. Right. They will be understandably they will be upset. They will have borrowed a lot of money to get there. Almost almost all of them. And because we made a promise that basically we couldn't fulfill. Education can't can't somehow magically, you know, change the labor market. That's not how things work. Uh, and, and really, that's kind of that's, I think, why. And we see this right now in the UW system. That's why we're constantly on uh, on on defense. Right. We're always having to defend this because we've made, been made responsible for something. People's livelihoods that we can't we can't control. We can't control. Talking to Neil Krauss from UW-River Falls. His new book is The Fantasy Economy, Neoliberalism, Inequality, and the Education Reform Movement. You can join in with your thoughts, your questions at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. Neil, a big part of your book is looking at this education reform movement. This, These ideas you're talking about, the fantasy economy, uh, you say didn't just emerge you know, organically on its own. There was a major movement led in many cases by large corporate funded uh, foundations. What, tell a little bit about that story. Yeah, I mean, um, really starting in the, in the 70s and, and, and then definitely in the 80s, I mean, capitalism changed. It, it was sort of a new version of, of capitalism. It was a, a version that was really about shareholders and, and owners uh, only. It was about, you know, the economic interests of, of shareholders and owners and not about employees and communities and the public. And, and that whole, you know, that whole agenda um, was not, you know, looking back was not going to be popular, you know, to say in, in 1980, as popular as Ronald Reagan was, he wasn't going to go to Michigan or Wisconsin and say, you know, here's what, here's what's going to happen. We're going to uh, basically get rid of unions in the private sector uh, your jobs will be shipped overseas. Uh, we're going to more or less freeze the minimum wage for years and years at a time. We're going to roll back the social welfare state. Uh, we're going to attack, you know, government and free markets are going to save us. I mean, that's that's not really uh, uh, going to work very well in in you know in the 1980s. It's not going to work very well 
today. So we sort of shifted the debate and uh, to make it about education. And that's where foundations and, and business interests really start uh, and think tanks just churning out just, just reams of reports that are repeated uh, and, and, you know, in, in news outlets just continually uh, right up to the present day. And basically, they all sort of say versions of the same thing, that there's not enough skilled workers. And, you know, today, the, 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 all the heat is on higher ed and higher ed needs to be reformed because, you know, there's a skills gap and there's not enough uh, qualified workers out there. So there's, there's just lots and lots of business interests and, and, uh, and foundations and think tanks and consultants that, it, it, you know, it, it, it's like a vocabulary that's just repeated endlessly. Uh, and, and it appears everywhere. And then once it appears everywhere, the notion that there's a skills gap uh, becomes sort of a given. But when you look at the actual data, the, the population is, is, uh, has been overeducated for the job market for several decades. So there, there's, there's really not a skills gap at all. Another key theme, in some cases coming from the same think tanks and foundations you were talking about, was, uh, well, like you said in the 80s, the perception that schools today are less good than they were X number of years ago, which seems to keep be a recurring message no matter which decade you look at. Yeah, for sure. Um, and, and, you know, when, when people talk about that sort of thing, they, they really don't look at the historical context at all. By, by all standard measures, we are the, the best educated we have ever been in American history. I mean, educational attainment rates today are, are the highest they've ever been. Um, you know, 90, 91% of, of uh, people who are 25 and up have a high school degree or equivalent, uh, you know, GED at least, um, you know, bachelor's degree holders and, and master's degree holders. Um, people tend to forget in this debate that 50 years ago, you know, half the population dropped out of high school and very few people got, you know, bachelor's degrees and so forth. So it was a it was a different, a very different sample of people going to college in the 1940s and 50s. It, you know, today and, you know, much more people graduate from high school, many more people, many more people go on to college. Um, and for obvious reasons, because the, popu the population lives in the real economy. They know their, their options are, are really limited unless they, they get a, a two-year degree or four-year degree or, or more. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, the, the notion that the education system has, has declined, if you look at it historically, just doesn't hold much water at all. Talking to Neil Kraus, professor of political science at UW-River Falls. His new book is called The Fantasy Economy, Neoliberalism, Inequality, and the Education Reform Movement. You can join in at 800-642-1234. Do you have thoughts on what you're hearing from our guest? What do you think of our education system in the United States here in Wisconsin? Do you think there's too much attention to job training at various levels of school, high school, say, or college. Or do you want to see more of that? Join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. Or email ideas at WPR.org. We'll continue the conversation coming up here on Central Time. This is Central Time. I'm Rob Ferret. We're picking up the conversation with UW-River Falls political science professor Neil Krauss about his new book, The Fantasy Economy. You can join in at 800-642-1234. Are you a K-12 through or college educator? What do you wish policymakers knew about working in education? 
How would you like to see the U.S. government, Wisconsin's government, tackle poverty? Is the answer more education or is it something else? Join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. Let's bring out a caller now. Jack is with us in Milwaukee. Jack, hello. Hello. Yeah, the, the question I'd kind of like to bring up with you is, is that uh, in comparison, say, to Germany, where they've had uh, basically a democratic socialistic government for many decades, uh, have they had a different experience as to the demand for highly educated and professionals in their economy? Jack, thanks for the call. Anil, in your book, I don't think you did a lot of compare and contrast with other countries, but do you have thoughts on Jack's point? Um, you know, I didn't in the book. Uh, I, I don't, you know, I don't know much about the German economy. I, I, what I would say off the top of my head is, you know, as a Western economy, I don't think it's my, my hunch would be, it's not that much different than, you know, the U S economy in terms of the labor market. Um, but I, you know, I, I, but I can't speak to that with any, you know, with any expertise. Jack, thanks for the call. Jill joins us now in Solon Springs. Jill, hello. Hi, good afternoon. Um, I had a specific question about the money and the financing. Um, you talk about the Reagan administration and um, all the think tanks and the kind of the genesis in the 80s. What's happening right now? Why are their legislative bodies allowing this to happen? Jill, thanks for the call. Neil? Yeah, I mean... Um... I don't know what legislators could do. I mean, foundations and think tanks uh, put out reports all the time uh, and, you know, they have a First Amendment right to do that. I, I don't I don't think that, that they could or should be limited in that regard. I think that rather I think it's incumbent upon educators and, and journalists and scholars to, you know, to to look at who is paying for this report and do they have any interests in in the way this whole issue is set up here, the way the way the whole issue is framed, or more concretely, do they have any immediate business interests, um, you know, at all that would benefit from this report? So, you know, I I, I don't think that we could we could or should limit what's what's out there. Um, I think rather that that a lot of us have to look much more critically at the reports and especially the data, especially the numbers that are being, you know, presented routinely and, and often just become, uh, you know, become true just because they're repeated enough times when in reality, when you look at what the labor market actually is, uh, those, those numbers, in fact, are quite misleading. Jill, thanks for the call. Andrew is with us now in Janesville. Andrew, hello. Yeah, hi. I guess I just want to take issue with, with one of your, your experts, uh, uh, points that that just because more people or more kids are receiving degrees graduating high school that that somehow indicates the education system has improved i don't think that these kids who are receiving these degrees are getting as high a quality of education as the kids who did receive degrees years ago and i think there are a lot of yeah i don't have them in front of me but i have read studies in the past that show that kids knowledge of civics in particular is just dismal and uh, you know i'm speaking from the perspective of an educator too uh, their their attention spans are are just absolutely 
gone. I, I, I just I can't fathom how uh, they're getting a better education. Andrew, thanks for the call. You mentioned a, a few of the criteria for measuring that, Neil. You also talk about uh, more students are taking higher level courses at earlier ages. Kindergarten now looks like first grade used to. Other 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 uh, qualifiers. But what do you think of Andrew's argument that there have been some declines? No, I, I think, and, and what you said, uh, Rob, I was going to mention that, that you know, there's been an increasing academic emphasis on the lower grades in school for many, many years, and also in, in middle school and high school, you know, advanced math and things like that. Um, but at the same time, I, I think that, you know, it, it is the case that, you know, areas like civics, especially since no, no Child Left Behind, social studies, history, the arts, all these things have been on the chopping block uh, in in districts across the country. Why? Because of a of an incessant sort of campaign uh, to engage in standardized tests and test preparation and really math and 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 reading and then uh, science on top of that. But everything else often falls uh, you know falls by the wayside. So I think there's something to be to be said for that. That has to do, I would argue, with the narrowing of the curriculum than it than it has to do with any sort of watering down standards or anything like that. Andrew, thanks for the call. We're talking to Neil Krauss about his new book, The Fantasy Economy. Dan joins us now in Appleton. Dan, hi. Oh, hello. Um, I, I was, you know, the author uh, was, uh, I mean, addressed this uh, circular problem that you, if you don't have an economy to support high tech or higher educated jobs, there's not as many of them or, or even though they constantly say that they need more high-skilled workers. At the same time, so you go to get an education because you want to make money. You know, you have to make enough money to survive. Yet you need all these other people or lots of people to fill lots of non-high-skilled positions. I gotcha. Yet- Dan, your, your connection is not great, but I think we get the gist. Dan, uh, Neil, Dan, getting at uh, one of the central uh, arguments, paradoxes of your book, people get that education to get better pay. And then they join a pool of people that uh, isn't necessarily finding that that's true. Yeah, I mean, I, it certainly is the case. And, and I, you know, I stipulate and agree 100 percent that if you have a four year degree, if you have an advanced degree, on average, you, you know, you have a higher wage than somebody with less formal education. The, the question becomes in the aggregate is is sending more and more people to get a four year degree. Uh, is that going to somehow magically transform the labor market and and turn warehouses into high tech centers employing a bunch of engineers and 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 you know software designers? The answer is no. I mean, it can't do that. Our, our society is built largely on consumption, uh, con- and most of what we consume is is uh, is stuff, uh, objects. It's not information. It's not data. Uh, and you know most of the the stuff that we consume is not produced in this country anymore. So uh, it's absolutely true on the individual level that the benefits of higher ed are there on average. But in the aggregate, as a policy, we've seen what what happens when we you know more and more people get higher levels of attainment. It's correlated with increasing uh, inequality and stagnant wages for a pretty significant majority of people. So. Thanks for that call. And Neil, just in our last minute, if the focus isn't on educating people into skills, uh, give us a hint. Where do you think we should be looking for solutions to that uh, economic inequality you just mentioned? Well, I mean, I think that and this is what I argue in the book. I think we have to revisit 
what is called neoliberalism, excuse me, uh, in its entirety. I mean, we've we've done this experiment for 40 years with, you know, this assault on organized labor and with the outsourcing of jobs and with, you know, uh, sort of a, the erosion of antitrust. And so corporations uh, merge with other huge corporations and that ultimately isn't good for workers. Um, you know, the minimum wage uh, should be should be raised with inflation, business culture and the notion that that a shareholder, uh, uh, you know, business culture has been has been good for anybody but shareholders uh, doesn't seem to be the case. So I think that you know education should be uh, responsible for and is responsible for educating citizens in a democracy. And uh, sure, a lot of folks are going to go to school and go to college because they want a particular job. But at the end of the day, the discussion of economic opportunity and wages and all the rest of it has to be on employers and policy makers because they're the ones that really that really are responsible for the jobs that exist and, and the wages that are paid. We'll leave it there. Thanks to our guest, Neil Krauss, professor of political science at UW-River Falls. We've been talking about his new book, The Fantasy Economy. I'm Rob Ferrett. This is Central Time here on the Ideas Network.